So thank you all for your wholehearted practice, which is so touching. I want to thank Jogan for bringing Bahia into our universe yesterday. This bark clad being. I just wanted to clarify that Bahia is not wearing bark because he's too lazy to wear clothes or go shopping. He's wearing bark because he is a practitioner of non-harming, non-wasting. He is a renunciant, a shramana, part of a great tradition that the Buddha himself was a part of. If you're interested in learning more about those shramanas, there is a sutta called the Samanapala Sutta, which talks about these different teachers and their views on rebirth and karma. It's very interesting. So Bahia made his clothes from the bark on the ground. He's someone to take seriously. I've been considering this sutta, and it's brought up this really interesting question for me, which is, what is the value of personal inspiration in practice? Of course, when we're stirred by the truth of dukkha, we become inspired to practice. That's why we're all here. We may join a sitting group, start a daily sitting routine, take the precepts. All of these are wonderful, life-changing actions, wonderful for ourselves and for others. But then we come to Sushin, where we take up an extended commitment to intensified practice, and personal inspiration starts to wane. We start to doubt, to question, just like Bahia. Have I made any progress? Is there a point to all this hardship? How can I tell? In Sushin, we come to that wall of questions pretty quickly. You might be familiar with the dialogue. It was actually sort of fun to write this out for myself. So why are we walking around in circles endlessly? Do I really care about aspiration when my body hurts this much? Actually, what is my aspiration? What's the point of getting up this early? On and on and on. But that's the whole point of Sushin, to show us that this personal territory 
which includes personal inspiration, is shaky ground. It's a tank with very little gas in it. You simply can't get through a nine-day session only burning personal fuel. Or maybe you can, but it will be horrible. Many of you are very familiar with Sashin, so you know that this can be a challenging time. There's a rhythm. And you know that because of the truth of impermanence, it will pass. Sashin is such an interesting front row seat on impermanence. I don't know if you've had this experience of just totally hating a moment and then The next moment is bliss. It's all very strange. So I thought I'd share what I do when inspiration is really flagging for me, when I really don't want to be here anymore, just in case it's helpful for you. As I mentioned yesterday, when I have no inspiration to practice for myself, I do it for someone else. It can simply be the person across from me. Sometimes that's interesting, just a stranger who is sitting across from you. Or it could be a beloved being in your life. Or maybe for a cause. Or how about all those folks on the dedication list? If this doesn't work, then we're in the territory of surrender. Stop aspiring altogether. Just one foot in front of the other. Just get up when the bell rings. Stop the fight with energy conservation. I don't know if you do this but maybe you're familiar with this dialogue. I'll keep 10% in the tank for myself. There's this pressing feeling that you're going to die if you fully commit. The irony is that until we fully commit, we don't understand that energy is not ours. It never was. Maybe another way of saying this is at some point you're forced to orient towards offering, service, or faith, or all of the above. 
You have to trust in the uncertainty that you don't know what's going on. But you're here. And that can't be underestimated. There's also another option, which is to become interested in well-being. We shouldn't forget that a deep and abiding joy is the promise of the Buddhist path. And so today I'd like to talk a bit about that. I don't know if you've heard this, but for some reason I heard this time and time again, that the Buddha taught one thing and one thing only the way to the end of dukkha. Is that true? Of course, we can all testify to the importance of the teaching of dukkha. Even as we sit here, we can feel the depth of our distress. Even doing nothing, it arises. Our inner critics, our weary and tiring storylines, our limiting beliefs, the feelings of discomfort in the body. As we listen deeply, we can see that even sounds are not simple for us. We chase after them, project onto them. We like some sounds. We don't like other sounds. Sounds become stories in which we're centrally important. Even listening, we make into something difficult. So we can feel very appreciative of the Buddha's insight into the all-pervading truth of dukkha. Its subtle nature, its many disguises, because we experience that to be true. But there is another truth. And when we encounter the Dharma, we also encounter this truth. When we listen deeply, we encounter this truth. This is the truth of well-being. This is probably one of the reasons why people visit the monastery. They feel good when they are here. This is probably one of the reasons that you stay at a monastery. There is some sense of well-being in the atmosphere. And I find it puzzling that we don't focus on this fact more, the fact of well-being. The other day I was reading the Vietnamese Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh's version of the Four Noble Truths. 
And I was very struck by his reframing of them. He talks about them as the method for becoming intimate with the totality of our human experience, both ill-being and well-being. And he's interested in the connection between the two states. He rephrases the first noble truth as, there is ill-being. And he welcomes us to become deeply intimate with this fact of human experience. What does it feel like in your bodies? Yes. What are its manifestations in your lives? What is the particular taste of ill-being that you enjoy? He rephrases the second noble truth as, there is a direct path that leads to ill-being. And he welcomes us to think about conditions, seeds, planting. He welcomes us to look at the ways that we create ill-being in our lives. The third noble truth is reframed as the truth of well-being. He welcomes us to acknowledge well-being as a fact of human experience. There are moments, even fleeting, when we feel well. In fact, he makes the important point that suffering and well-being make sense of each other. No ill-being, no well-being. For Thich Nhat Hanh, it's important to find the joy in your experience. Pay attention to a cup of tea, the sound of the rain, the warmth of the sun, the beautiful sound of the bell. And he reframes the fourth noble truth as the truth of a direct path leading to well-being. He reminds us that the Eightfold Path is a path to well-being. Somehow I think we forget that. When you walk the path, you are indicating a deep interest in well-being. And you are indicating your disenchantment with ill-being. So let's place some attention on this third noble truth, the truth of well-being that surrounds us, sukha. Sukha is a Sanskrit word which can be translated as happiness, ease, or bliss. 
Its literal translation is often given as good space or good aperture, coming from the Sanskrit words su and ka, as opposed to dukkha, bad space. Its meaning in the early religious tradition of India, the Vedic tradition denotes running swiftly or easily. It was originally associated with a chariot that has a good axle hole. I'm sure you've heard about that. And it's often explained in contrast to preya, pleasure. This is because sukha is a deep and lasting state of happiness, while preya is a temporary state or a passing pleasure. In the Buddhist tradition, there is another word which is often used along with sukha, and that is piti, or priti in Sanskrit. They are closely connected. You can think of them as the thought part of well-being and the bodily experience of well-being. It's often, the analogy that is given is often a weary traveler, their delight when coming across an oasis. That's piti. And sukha is the actual pleasure after bathing and drinking. Sukha and piti, two words that are used extensively in the text. The Dharma offers us a full and deep experience of pleasure. And it does not say that it is something that one needs to train for or build up to. We don't get it by reciting more and more affirmations. We don't get it by becoming different, more likable, more friendly, more positive. We don't get it by acquisition of things. And we don't get it by rejection of things. The Dharma makes the very radical statement that sukha is an undeniable fact of our existence, that it is always present, always available to us, a limitless resource that we can draw upon. It is the atmosphere we swim in. In the sutras, the dwellings of Brahma, the Brahma Viharas, are talked about as spaces of sukha. We may know them as the four measurables or four boundless qualities of the heart, loving kindness, metta, compassion, karuna, sympathetic joy, mudita, and equanimity, upeksha, or you could know them as the dorms here at Great Vow. Um, those are the Brahma Viharas. I like to uh, contemplate this dwelling, sympathetic joy. It's interesting to explore because when we hear this suggestion to feel joyful for others, we often feel a sense of self-criticism. Why don't I feel that? What's wrong with me? But what Mudita is actually pointing to is a statement of fact. 
we are experiencing the joy of others. The Brahma Viharas are ever-present, boundless, inexhaustible. Actually, in the traditional Brahma Vihara practices, the method is spoken about as a form of resting. We don't need to do anything. The practice instructions are simply to rest in these conditions, letting them shine in all directions without any kind of force or effort. It's a little different from how we practice metta, usually. I'll just quote Bhikkhu Analayo as he describes the traditional practice in the following way. The simile I use is a lamp standing behind a curtain. We just softly and gently pull away the curtain. Just allow the light to shine as far as it shines naturally. There is no need to push to make it stronger. All we do is simply pull away that curtain and allow it to be open. This is apamana. This is boundlessness doesn't mean we have to reach out to any specific distance. It just means not putting any boundary. That is quite sufficient. From simply resting in that condition, it naturally becomes more familiar and stronger. Resting in well-being. I've been thinking about the presence of well-being a lot these days because I have the wonderful blessing of having a young child in my life, my little nephew. Not only does he bring me a great deal of joy, but he seems to have an antenna for joy. The other day we were pasting stickers on a window, and as we did this, a crow landed directly in front of us on the ledge. It was staring at us with its beady, curious, penetrating crow eyes. And we both looked up and saw the crow at exactly the same time when the flurry of its blackness flew into our field of vision. And I was taken aback by the look of sheer awe and excitement on my two-year-old nephew's face. The wonder of this crow's being simply seized his entire little body and he shuddered with joy. I don't think I have ever seen a crow's magnificence like this before. How do we miss joy? How come I don't feel it the way my nephew does? How come it doesn't grip my body and make me shiver? Maybe because I don't study it the way I study pain. Where was my attention drawn before I looked up and saw the crow? Clearly our human minds are drawn towards the dark, as we can see by the millions of true crime documentaries and murder mysteries on Netflix. 
We are fascinated by our darkness. Perhaps this interest is a survival instinct. We need to pay attention to the part of us that's not working well. I don't know why. It's just a theory. For whatever reason, suffering, dukkha, is an easier place for us to focus our attention. I've even found that when I read the story of the Buddha's life, I seem to have paid more attention to the moments of discontent and disenchantment, the moments of lack and striving. And I've skimmed over the moments of well-being, the moments of equanimity, connection, contentedness. These are also moments we can really relate to. For instance, the moment when Siddhartha recalls a childhood experience under the rose apple tree, a moment of peace, joy, contentment. Perhaps we can relate to a pleasurable moment from our childhood that made a deep impression of well-being. Or the moments of generosity and human connection when Siddhartha is given food to sustain his starving body, an act of kindness from a stranger. Have you ever received a gift like this? or when he's given a helping hand by the god Brahma, plagued by lack of inspiration, not knowing whether he wants to teach. Perhaps we can relate to a moment when we've been beneficiaries of support and encouragement, when we're feeling uninspired, when we feel resistant to manifesting our gifts. We know how good support in times like this feels. One of the striking things for me about reading the sutras is the down-to-earth nature of the interactions. They show us encounters between beings of all kinds. And these beings talk from their particular vantage point about the questions that are puzzling them. And the Buddha's responses really stand out in their compassion and pragmatism. What's striking is that the Buddha recognizes the joy inherent in living, inherent in participating in society, in being in relationship with others. There are many, many teachings on the value of recognizing what brings well-being in lay life. There's a sutta called the Digajanu Sutta, and a person named Digajanu approaches the Buddha and says, I think in kind of a state, expecting a different response. He says, we are lay people enjoying sensuality, living crowded with spouses and children, using fancy silks and sandalwood, wearing garlands, scents and creams, handling gold and silver. May the blessed one teach the Dhamma for those like us, for our happiness and well-being in this life for our happiness and well-being in lives to come? Definitely the suggestion is that he's waiting to just say, this is not for you. Um, 
But instead of telling Digajanu to live a more frugal life, to give up the nice creams and scents and fine fabrics and take up the path of renunciation, the Buddha points to sources of well-being that are alive in Digajanu's current situation. He suggests very pragmatic things. It's worth paying attention to the way that you do your job, the importance of protecting the things that you cherish, the value of virtuous friendship, and the joy of even-headed living. In another sutra, he describes other types of happiness that pertain to lay life. For instance, the happiness of earning. We can be happy from getting wealth through just and righteous means. The happiness of sharing our wealth with family, friends, and on meritorious deeds. The happiness of debtlessness. Happiness that comes free from being free from debt. To, from living according to your means. And the happiness of blamelessness, to live a faultless and pure life without committing evil in thought, word, and deed. And of course, in the Mangala Sutta that we chant at the monastery, there's a treasure trove of advice for well-being. Associating with the wise, paying attention to where you live, the kind of work you do, the value of training and developing skills, being careful how you speak, avoiding intoxicants, taking care of your parents and your family, giving and not harming, the virtues of being respectful, humble, patient, grateful, and content, being able to accept one's faults, going to teachers, and sharing the Dharma. In many places, this simple advice for lay people is repeated. Chittam dantam sukhavaham. Restraint of mind brings happiness, which means not getting carried away by your thoughts or acting impulsively on them. Chittam guttam sukhavaham. Guarding one's mind brings happiness, which means be careful what you put into your mind. This is something that we can all relate to with our unlimited access to information and images. Dhammo chinno sukhavaho. The practice of Dhamma brings happiness which means taking refuge, living according to the precepts, having some kind of guidelines for your behavior, some kind of aspiration for your life. In answer to questions about how to bring about well-being and happiness in the next life, the Buddha says, faith in the teachings. The practice of sila, the precepts, and metta, generosity, and wisdom, having insight into the arising and passing of things. Of course, the greatest sense of well-being for the Buddha was dedication to the spiritual path. He considered renunciation to be the deepest source of joy. 
And he spoke about well-being as the foundation for awakening. The Buddha encourages us to pay attention to the fact that the body experiences joy, to become familiar with it so we know when it is present. As you know, it is one of three types of sensation, Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Can we develop an awareness of pleasant sensation to the degree that we notice painful sensation. This is a really interesting practice to explore. Might be something that you would like to take up in this session. Can you be aware when the body is experiencing pleasant sensations? In the commentarial tradition on Buddhist meditation, The development of concentration, the term is dhyana in Sanskrit or jhana in Pali, is seen as a direct movement towards well-being. Simply, you need to feel good to concentrate. You need to be interested and refreshed by your meditation in order to stay present. One-pointedness happens because it is enjoyable. The five mental factors that lead to a concentrated mind are seen as ways of counteracting the five hindrances. This is quite interesting. So the first factor, bringing attention to the object, gathering of energy towards something, is said to counteract our tendency to sloth and torpor. The second factor, sustaining attention on the object. This is said to counteract our tendency towards doubt and uncertainty. We commit. The third factor, interest in the object, is said to bring forth joy, piti. When we are interested in something, it feels good. This is said to counteract our tendency towards ill will or aversion. The fourth factor is the sense of settling into the object. This brings forth pleasure in the form of ease or contentedness, which is said to counteract our tendency towards restlessness and worry. Once we begin to feel this deep sense of well-being that is born from concentration, the mind will stay in place, which leads to the fifth factor, one-pointedness. If you are deeply interested in something, the mind does not stray. This is said to counteract our tendency towards sensory desire. So it's not surprising that the awakened state is often described as a state of bliss, intense well-being. In contrast to the suffering we usually experience as a result of a life bound by the five hindrances.
well-being is the expression of an awakened life. The person who embodies the paramitas, the perfections, is said to shine, their radiance bringing joy to others. You may know people like this, people who are well-resourced by well-being, who light others up as well. It occurred to me that the Dharma has been sustained for thousands of years because of the direct exchange of well-being. Monks and nuns receive food in exchange for a blessing. The lay community gets to rejoice in the joy of giving, listening to the sounds of nourishment, And the monastic community gets to share the Dharma and experience the joy of being sustained. This live exchange of well-being preserves the teachings that have reached us today. So I think it's important to not just focus on the Dharma as a solution to suffering. It's also an oasis of good feeling, connectedness, well-being. Let's continue to open our ears to well-being noticing these sukha elements in our experience. Maybe when we enter this room, we could see it as an abode of sukha, how it nourishes and supports and sustains us. May we all be well.